Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 126. My name is Dr. David C. Noe. I am here in the bunker Vomitorium South with my good friend and fabulous co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you this evening, Jeff? I'm feeling good, but I'm feeling a little out of sorts because it's been, it feels like it's been a, a, a bit of time since we've been together down here. Three weeks, maybe? Three weeks. Two to three weeks? Yeah. People were probably beginning to wonder, yeah. hoping... That this little show was done. Maybe, maybe exactly <laughs> right. People kind of abandoning ship and said, finally, yes, finally, they gave it up. Right, <laughs> but no, we no, are back. We're back, yeah. But I'm feel I'm feeling good. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling ready. It's yeah. good to renew our friendship, renew our uh, classics as a way of life. Mm-hmm. The uh, the vibe that we're on. That's right. And uh, you're how are you doing? I'm doing well. You're, thanks for asking. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's been a good day. Got into the gyme a little bit. Very good. Yes, uh, moved some iron around. Excellent, as did I. You did? I did. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And you've been on the road, though. Right? I have been traveling quite a bit. Yeah. I know that you did um, a local, uh, you did like a week, of, it was a spoken Latin week. Well, it wasn't all spoken. Okay. Actually, it was a lot of English. Okay. Um, some speaking. It was the uh, Colloquium Latinum Istewum, mm-hmm. the summer Latin colloquium. Yep. Uh, part two. And this took place at Quilted Crossings. Quilted Crossings. Yes. What, now, what is that? Well, my friend, uh, my friends Kevin and Laura, they own this fabulous place out in Woodland, Michigan, Okay. Um, where people go to quilt. Do they really? Yes. There's a lot of quilters here in the Midwest. Did you have to like step over quilters on your no, way to the no, colloquium? No, 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 no. We reserved it. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, we turned the Quilted Crossings into a, a, a Latin uh, designated area so, and for a week. So And everybody kind of lived and ate together? And yes. Was, wow. Yeah. 12 individuals in this house. Yeah. Uh, I and the hospitality staff, which mm-hmm. is Mrs. Noe and, and our daughter, mm-hmm. uh, lived offsite, but we had 12 individuals there, scholars, pastors, Latin teachers from around the country. Fantastic. I'd like to talk about it a little bit, if I may. Please do. Okay. Yeah. So we had one individual come from Portland, Oregon. Okay. Another from Stanford, California. One from Texas, I think three from Illinois, a couple from, uh, four from North Carolina. Uh, we had one from uh, Maryland. It was just a, a tremendous um, Alabama, That's uh, a tremendous cross section of uh, really fine scholars uh, who got together to read Latin and study. So we had Barbara and Kara and Ruth and Joan and Tyson and Marty and Douglas and Kelly, I mean, Douglas and Caroline and just a whole host of folks. That sounds fantastic. Were there were there any Michiganders there besides yourself? Was it all I out-of-staters? I think there was not a single Michigander. That is, that is really yeah. cool. Would you like to know what we read? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So on Monday, we read um, Lucas, sorry, <clears throat> we read Lucius Aeneas Seneca, his Ad Marcium de Consolatione, his mm-hmm. Consolation to Marcia. Interesting Latin. And uh, we spent a day with Seneca, you know, kind of his pointed style, not Ciceronian, but always striving for um, effect and juxtaposition of interesting um, constructions and styles. Yeah. Uh, The second day, uh, Tuesday, we read from um, Lactantius. So this guy is from uh, early fourth century. We we read his uh, Epitome Divinarum Institutionum. So his summary or epitome of his divine institutes. Okay. So really interesting, Lactantius, I'll be brief. Mm -hmm. uh, He wrote um, the divine institutes in seven books and uh, it was uh, it was a success 
Uh, but his brother, probably not his actual brother, but a fellow Christian, a, a guy named Pentadius, said, uh, you know, Lactantius, your book is great, but it's way too long. <laughs> so he wanted the Cliff's Notes? That's right. Okay. So Lactantius <laughs> said, okay, fine. And then he wrote this epitome. All right. And, uh, All right. Just some beautiful Ciceronian Latin. Lactantius uh, was called the... Um, uh, the Cicero Christianus during the Renaissance, because oh. he had such beautiful Latin. All right. Okay. And Wednesday, we moved on to a Bernard of Clairvaux, or Bernie, as his friends uh, called him. So yeah. we, we didn't have an entire weekend with Bernie, but uh, we had a Wednesday. A Wednesday with Bernie. That's yeah. correct. And yeah. we read his uh, De Diligendo Deo on Loving God, uh, which is just a fabulous work of um, 12th century Latin, quite good Latin. Okay. Thursday, we yeah. move on to Erasmus, De Pueris Instituendis, on the instruction of children. Now, Erasmus is the only individual that made an appearance in both years. So we had him in the 2022 colloquium. We brought him back for 2023, and he did not disappoint. So he was back by popular demand. That's correct. Okay. Desiderius, his first name, you know. Um, Desi. Yeah, Desi, or mm -hmm. how would we translate that? Wanty? Wanty, like yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a big hit. And uh, Very cool. Then on Friday, we capped it off with um, Theodore Beza, uh, a work of a kind of catechetical nature, and um, just a great time. So the, the folks that came together, they're just some top flight um, Latin students. Again, yeah. some are pastors, some are actually quite famous scholars, and some are Latin teachers, and uh, we had meals together. Now, the funny thing, Jeff, yes. <clears throat> was that I took the Ratio 8 to the site, you know, the one with the... Um, the oyster color and the walnut accents and so forth. And the hulking flagon? Well, the funny thing is that Mrs. Noe said, you know, that that's a great machine, but is it going to be able to produce enough coffee for 13 individuals? That's said, an excellent question. It is. I said, well, yes. you know, I don't know, but I got to take it because it's going to be a hit. Yes. And it was a little bit unnerving. <laughs> one individual, we'll just call him Tyson because that's his name. Yes. Uh, I'm setting up the coffee. He says, wait a minute. Is that the ratio eight? I said, Yeah. He said, and is that the hulking flagon? I said, yes, Tyson, it is. And is that the Fibonacci head? And are those the metallic? And it was like, it was as though he had listened to all these episodes. Yes. And, wow. Wow. So he was in awe of, he the, was. of the object. He was. Yeah, yes. And oh. it's it's famous, kind of. <laughs> and I was, it was a little unnerving, right? Yeah. I was thinking, what have we been doing? 126 episodes. That's but hysterical. It was a great hit. And people loved it. Wait, and, were you, I guess you, you do multiple pots. Oh, the thing was running around the clock. I, I imagine, yes. And we had a we had a second, uh, sorry, Mark, not ratio, oh. a second squirty plastic machine going because... Uh, as intense as the Latin study was, uh, mm -hmm. people needed a lot of coffee to keep them going. I can imagine. Uh, but yeah. we had adult beverages, we had soft drinks, we had delicious food. It was just a fantastically good time. So I, I'm uh, I'm assuming there's going to be a, a part three. I think so. Yeah, yeah. we're going to plan it for uh, 2024. So our listeners, so, uh, well, you'll have to keep them apprised when this is coming, and if they, if or I could just let them know and inform them, or that. Okay. Right. <laughs> You want me to apprise them? I keep them we up to date. We don't give out apprises. Right. So, so now you, the list of, of authors there, right. you know, my chronology always gets fuzzy, anything after Constantine. Yeah. But were you going chronologically? Yes, that okay. was the plan. Gotcha. Sequential. The idea is uh, Latin is Latin from whatever era. Yes. There are some differences. And, you know, I'm very thankful for Erasmus and Valla and Petrarch and the guys that brought back good Latin style during the Renaissance. Yeah. 
But Bernard Clairvaux, you know, he was called Dr. Mellifluous. Really? The honey flowing doctor. It sounds like, a, like he should have been a DJ. That's good. It's, <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> because he has such great style. Wow. And, uh, you know, we had fires in the evening and the weather was perfect. You, you know that it's been a little bit hot. But it has been. Yeah. For that particular week, um, July 17 through 21, zero humidity. Yeah. Nice, uh, cool evenings. So with these uh, uh, fires in the hearth or outside? Outside, yeah. ar- around the uh, the fire pit. Nice. And uh, we just had a great time. That so. sounds fantastic. Yeah. And the hospitality crew, uh, Mrs. Noe and uh, our daughter, they, they just did great. They came well. through? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a good time. Fantastic. Yep. Excellent. Well, yeah, we'll have to keep um, uh, our listeners uh, aware of when the next That's one's right. coming around. Right. So, But, I, but I mean, if you're going back to the same place, yeah. uh, space is limited. Well, we could only fit 12. Yeah. I think there's enough demand. I don't know. I could probably do two weeks in a row, um, but I just, you know, I have other things to do. Yes. Indeed. Speaking of other things to do. Yeah. Yeah. I went out to Kansas. Oh, that's right. You've been everywhere. Okay. Well, so what were you doing down there? Okay. So <clears throat> a kind of a, a preliminary shout out. We have a real one coming up, but a preliminary shout out to the folks at the Classical School of Wichita. Okay. So Wichita, Kansas, my geography uh, is only slightly better than it was before I went there. Mm-hmm. But Wichita is, uh, I guess, about an hour from the Oklahoma border, 45 minutes. Okay. More or less, if, if you picture um, Kansas as like a big rectangle, yeah. uh, Wichita is more or less in the center and on the bottom. Okay. So not too far from Oklahoma. So yeah. they invited me to come out and do a teacher in-service. So on, I flew out on Wednesday and um, on Thursday, spent the whole day teaching Greek, uh, Moss Method, to some fabulous students. Uh, Evan and uh, Ben and Justin, and then on Thursday, on Friday, spent the whole day teaching Latin uh, to just some additional fantastic students, to, uh, to Jordan and Melissa and Kenna, and um, they showed me fantastic hospitality. They they wanted to meet you, Jeff. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Fans of the podcast, they were asking lots of questions, and uh, you know, we get when coffee was served, they would say things like. We're a little ashamed to serve you this coffee when, you know, we know you only drink from the ratio eight. <laughs> and again, it was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of unnerving to realize yeah. just that people are actually listening. That's great. Well, maybe next year I could come down and just kind of hang around. That'd be great. Yeah. 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 Sounds I mean, like, you're, the, you're the interesting one that provides the comic relief. Let's be honest. Okay. All right. I'll, so, I'll accept that. All right. <laughs> and I, I got back. Uh, all my flights were on time. Thankfully, it never happens. Wow. No. And uh, rolled into uh, Grand Rapids late Friday evening and was ready to go. Man. But what have you been up to? Boy, nothing like nothing like that travel schedule. Well, um, but I mean, interesting uh, things. You took some family time some away. Family time. Yeah. We, uh, my family and I spent a, a, uh, an annual week uh, up north, as they say here in Michigan. And so we were in a town called Onekama. Which is, what is that again? Unekama. Unekama. Which is, have you seen these, like, um, you know, people will put these stickers on their car with um, initials so they, you know, get right. into the outer bank. OBX. So, OBX, right? right. So there's one for um, Onekama. There's the number one with a comma, because when you look at the name, it looks like one comma. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a big fan Did of Did you that. get a couple of those to I, put on the back of your I, family I, wagon? I, I, I find them, uh, I don't know, there's something off-putting about okay. them. Okay. Right. But Onekama is beautiful. We had the, this cottage right on Lake Michigan on the dunes, and so lots of hiking and swimming and cooking and fires. It was it was great. Shark-free waters. Shark-free, salt-free. Is how uh, Lake Michigan bills itself. Exactly. Right. They don't mention the giant chunks of ice still floating. <laughs> From the previous winter. It was winter. actually very temperate. What? We were jumping off the pier into deep waters. It was it was wonderful. Really? Yes. And you 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 are the uh 
you're the chef for these events, aren't you? You yes. do all the cooking. It's part of the part of the deal. A right? man of many talents. So, what was on the menu? Uh, we did some. Uh, we did some Greek food. We did some souvlaki with mm-hmm. tzatziki and uh, uh, roast vegetables, briam. Wow. We did. We did um, some uh, Indian uh, curries. Mm-hmm. We did also just kind of classic um, um, burgers and brats, homemade pizza. Right. Um, uh, taco night. Right. And uh, the, the the place that we rent has a big kitchen with a big island. Nice. So it's a really fun place to cook. Nice. Yeah. So it's at this, I'm really, that's really interesting. It's at this point in the um, the podcast where the listeners usually say, come on already. Yeah. We're tired of hearing about yeah. your trip to Kansas and what you're serving and so right. forth. Get out of the classics. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But no. No. We're going to make them wait a little bit longer. Okay. Did you serve any tomatoes during this past week? Um, yes, there were. That's some, I ha- some roast tomatoes. I have yes. a little bit here. Okay. And no one's ever found it funny, but I'm going to inflict it on you. All right, and we'll see where it goes. All right, drop it. Okay, so when we were kids, there were not really cherry tomatoes. Do you remember when the cherry tomato craze first hit? I, I don't remember. It was it. along about the same time, maybe yeah. mid-80s, as the salad bar craze. Okay. These places around here were offering the all-you-can-eat salad bar. Yeah, okay. You remember that? I remember that, yeah. Okay, so yeah. then all of a sudden, um, in these little silos down in, among the ice cubes, there's cherry tomatoes. Yeah. And yeah. that was a big deal. <laughs> Don't you think that was a big deal? I'm sure it was. I, I'd never seen a cherry, a tomato that size. I'm sure people that were wandering through the protocell that do most of the shopping say, hey, what is this? Exactly. And right. then do you remember after, here's the bit, Yeah. they introduced grape tomatoes. Yes, yes. And yeah. I, was, I was thinking, grape tomatoes? Yeah. Right? What are the scientists up to? <laughs> Are we headed next toward like poppy seed tomatoes? That's got to be. I mean, they're, they keep getting smaller. Smaller. And right. finally, it'll just be a can of aerosolized tomatoes. <laughs> just, They'll just spray them at us. A, a tomato mist. Yes. <laughs> no one's ever found that funny. I like it. Okay. I like it, right. Yeah, you're a good friend. A I just kind of float that out there. How small must a tomato be before I will ingest it? Exactly. You know? But I, what I never understood is, uh, you know, so we've got the cherry. Right. The grape. It's just, it's slightly more oblong. And it's only a little bit smaller than a cherry. What's the, why would you choose one over the other? I don't know. I don't, yeah. I guess they have a slightly different taste. I've bought them both, but it was never like, oh, I got to get the cherries. And then there there are those yellow pear-shaped tomatoes. They call them pear tomatoes. Have you seen those? They're actually called pear tomatoes. Yes, they are. I have seen them. I didn't know. Because they're that kind of pear shape. So so where does it end, right? We're going to get banana tomato. You got to peel it yourself. Exactly Come right. on. Come on. Exactly. Right. All right. Well, that's the bit. Let's get to, <laughs> let's get back to classics. All right. So, hey, Dave, what are we talking about tonight? Well, we have an actual shout out. Oh, we do. Okay. Yes, so, we all right. do. All right. So <clears throat> you're going to have to read a little bit of this, please, because some of it is uh, complimentary to me. Oh. And um, you feel uncomfortable re- yes. reading this about yourself? Okay. Yes. All right, all right. Well, I'm comfortable hearing it. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable reading it. But okay. here we go. My name is Tyler Eaton. Currently, I am beginning the senior year of my undergraduate studies at Reformation Bible College. This is in uh, Orlando. Uh, but God's grace, says Tyler, I aim to earn an MDiv and further my education in postgraduate studies in the English and Scottish reformers. Mm. Now, you're going to have to read the next part. Please. While at RBC, I had the opportunity and privilege to study for a semester under Dr. Noe. Oh, so this, this is somebody That's you me. know. Yep. And consequently discovered the Odd Nauseam podcast. I mean this without any sense of false flattery. The pod, This podcast is excellent. It has helped broaden my knowledge and has instilled a newfound pleasure in the classics. We like that. Yes, we do. Not only are the classics filled with great stories and impressive rhetorical skills, but they illuminate the nature of the human soul, his longings, wants, fears, and desires. Hold on now. Yes. We have to take Tyler to task for a minute. Okay. Did you catch the pronoun there? Um, which one? His? Yes. Illuminate the nature of the human soul. Uh, his longings, wants, fears, and desires. Now, Tyler. Yes. Um, 
Well, you're Jeff, but... Yeah, you're, you're talking to Tyler. Right, 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 yes, right. Yes, okay. Yes. The soul has typically been treated as uh, feminine, right? Right. Typically, there's a feminine pronoun. So I don't know if Tyler is referring to himself when he says his longings, wants, fears, and desires, but if he's referring to the soul, we got to go pedantic on it. Right. And uh, we should say her longings, wants, fears, and desires. Right. Although I would say that if, if most people were writing the same passage, they would say its longings. Oh, you're right, because yes. the soul has been um, depersonalized. Right. Yes. Right. Anyway, we'll anyway. keep going. Okay. Uh, Tyler continues, these characteristics make the classics a helpful tool in my studies, and this podcast further aids that tool. Very nice. In a world of brackish tang, says Tyler, <laughs> the Ad Nauseam podcast is a delightful combination of precision brewing and top quality construction designed to elevate the classical podcast experience. Nicely done there. Right? That's good. I like the idea that you know, the, the world... Yeah, it's a dangerous trap full of brackish tang. Yeah, so you right? got to kind of wade through it yes. to the real stuff. It's exactly right. Tyler did a good job. Tyler, we're so thankful for all your kind words and uh, that you're listening out there. We appreciate it. Yes, we do. And uh, keep the torch of classics alive. So, yeah. Jeff, yep. at long last, yes. when the podcast is three quarters over, <laughs> tonight we are talking about the Homeric hymn to Demeter. Demeter, yeah. So, um uh, my hope, our hope, is uh, we'll do a few episodes on the the Eleusinian mysteries, mm-hmm. right? And uh, more on that later. But um, it's widely accepted that this that this um, roughly five hundred uh, long five hundred line long poem is in some ways kind of a source text for the uh, institution of this this famous religious practice. Okay. And so I thought we, we would spend um, an episode or two talking about this poem. Right. And breaking it down. Okay. Yeah. So the Eleusinian Mysteries, mm-hmm. um, are we going to say Demeter or Demeter? We should decide. We should, because otherwise we'll go back and forth exactly. and annoy people. Yeah. You know, I, more I, than normal. I find when I teach myth, I find myself going back and forth yeah. and, I, and I annoy myself. Right. Do you have a preference? Demeter, Demeter? I stick with Demeter. Demeter's uh, kind of my default. Probably as well. yeah, Demeter's the default. That, yeah. Should we go with that? Demeter. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to go with Demeter. All right. So Eleusis is uh, north and a little bit west of Athens. Yes. Uh, not even a 20 minute drive. Just right around the bend on the coast right. there. Yep. And you were there quite recently. I was, was it uh, April or May? April. Yep. Okay. And doing a photography project, which um, maybe we get into the later episodes of the series, I'll, I'll talk more about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Eleusis was. Um, was holy, right? Was sacred to Demeter. Yes. And so we need to talk a little bit about the site and about the poem. Is that right? That's in, that's right. Okay. Yep. And you have the opening quote. I do. And we hope that the people like it. Yes. So this comes from an article uh, entitled Athens, Eleusis, and the Homeric Hymn to Demeter by one Francis... Whoa, 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 whoa. Did I, did I, already, did I already break it? You said Demeter. Sorry. The Homeric Hymn to Demeter. There we go. Oh, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> By one Francis R. Walton, um, and this comes from the Harvard Theological Review way back in April of 1952. And Francis writes, The Homeric Hymn to Demeter is the earliest and for us the single most important literary record of the Eleusinian mysteries. These mysteries were for a thousand years one of the crowning glories of Athens, the pride of her statesmen, poets, and orators, a focal point of piety, which, though intimately civic, was at the same time panhellenic. The constant references to the cult in both prose and poetry attest its popularity and singular importance. Yet it remains a curious fact that in all Athenian literature, at least until Hellenistic times, there is no direct mention of the Homeric hymn and scarcely anything which can be reasonably identified even as a reminiscence or echo of it. Apparently the hymn was allowed to fall into almost total oblivion. Why this should have happened is a question that seems to merit some consideration. By the very 
nature of the problem, the evidence is inadequate to assure definite conclusions, but it is hoped that the solution proposed, though necessarily tentative, may add somewhat to our understanding of an obscure but interesting period in the religious history of Athens. So one of the... the so can you unpack that sure. for us a little bit, Jeff? So one of the, the, um, the many questions about the Eleusinian Mysteries is, to what degree did this hymn play a role in its 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 worship, in its rituals, and kind of just the knowledge of it by the initiates. Okay. Um, and because there are some things I don't know if we'll get to them today, but there are some elements in the story where it seems okay. Clearly, some ritual things are being laid out. Right. And others have said, you know, there's a lot of things in that poem, uh, or I should say, there's a lot of things in the rituals that we know about. Um, certain figures, certain gods and goddesses that aren't mentioned at all. Right. And so. So the question is, is it simply a, a literary production? Yes. Or is it um, a liturgy of, con of some exactly. kind used in the actual worship of the goddess there? Exactly. And at the end of the day, we don't really know. Okay. Right. So now we're not going to devote a whole episode to the concept of mystery religions. No. We did an episode on one of the mystery religions before. Yes. That was the cult of Mithras. Yes. In the episode entitled, We Bold This City. Yeah. I, I, that I, was you. That was, and I'm still shaking my head about yeah. that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that was episode 41. If, if, if Did you look it up? Back. I did. Okay. Yep. yep. Uh, but we should probably give the briefest definition for folks out there so that they can understand, in case they don't already, the difference between a mystery religion mm -hmm. and the more mundane vanilla religion, which we uh, assume was practiced in all of the Greek city-states. Right. Okay, yeah. So um, if I may paint with a very large brush. Please. Um, so the, the public cults, you know, which were c conducted on behalf of the people um, by, the, you know, by the priests at the temple, you know, uh, under the aegis of the patron deity. Mm -hmm. um, so in Athens, it's Athena. Athena. Obviously. Um, in these kind of public celebrations, there was very little mystery about what was going on. Um, the god was being appeased with, through sacrifice. There was very little for the populace to do by way of, of um, you know, conducting rituals or prayers. You might offer a token or maybe a small statue at the temple. You might you might participate in the procession, yeah. right? The Panathenaic procession. Right. But the actual cult worship, you would probably be more of a spectator yes. while the priests did the the cutting and the butchering and the burning and so forth. Exactly. Right. And it was all it was all public. And we don't really know to what degree did the, did the public really understand what was going on, but they understood that's in the hands of the priests, and there's very little for us to do along those lines. They didn't have to. And there's also then the question of, did they have an actual kind of faith in in the terms that we might use? Exactly, right. right, so, right. so as a Christian, I believe in a triune God. I have a, you know, a, a relationship that I cultivate with him mm -hmm. through prayers and attendance on worship. You could be a member of, well, if you were a member of the city of Athens, you were de facto a worshiper of Athena. Right. And we don't know whether that meant you had any kinds of feelings towards Athena. Right. That we might associate with one of the monotheistic religions today. Yeah. It, um, an analog that I, I often, um, well, this makes me think of is if you go to Italy today, you know, um, every Italian that you meet will very likely, if you were to ask them, you know, you know, what, you know what religion you are, well, I'm, I'm Roman Catholic, of course. Um, but church attendance in Italy is famously very, very low, right? And so right. everybody's a Catholic by just simply the fact that they're Italian. And so I think a similar kind of thing, too, is like, well, you are a believer, a worshiper of Athena, simply right. because you are an Athenian, not because of anything that you do on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis. Right. right. I was looking up some statistics today. 90% of those in Greece today describe themselves as Orthodox. Yeah. Uh, but church attendance, attendance on Sunday worship is really, really quite low. It's very low. And the people that you do find there are the very, very old. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we have talked about this a little bit before. Uh, we have quoted from this book, Personal Religion Among the Greeks by uh, André-Jean Festugier. Mm-hmm. And so that's a good source if people want to check that out. Yeah, great book. Um, so we've got the civic religion, but then the mystery religions, uh, Mithras, uh, the Dionysiac cult, and the one for today uh, of Demeter, Demeter and the Eleusinian mysteries. Mm-hmm. How would they differ, Jeff? Um, it's kind of a shift from the public to the private. You know, So if you accept, uh, as I certainly do, that um, you know, human beings kind of are born with kind of instilled um, kind of longing for transcendence. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you know what you know what Augustine called you know, the God shaped hole. Right. right. You can imagine that the the public cult, where there was very little for you to do as a citizen, spiritually speaking, mm. would be very unsatisfying. Right. Right. So far as we know, there was a, a kind of distance between the individual and the deity who was being honored in the ritual. Exactly. So if you think about um, you know a story like the Odyssey. Athena's attention to Odysseus, that's by that's the exception. Right. right. That's not the rule. Right. And I think that the the Greeks kind of understood that. That's one of the things that made it extraordinary that this goddess had this attention to this one individual. Right. It wasn't kind of a promise like, you know, well, if you grow up to be an Odysseus, she'll watch out for you too. Right. No. So my sense is that, you know, the the public cult kind of left this vacuum. Mm-hmm. And that's where these mystery cults came in and they promised a kind of a private secret initiatory experience that's what was going to cost you something, certainly in terms of time. Um, the Eleusinian mysteries, um, and as we'll see, just like with Mistras, they're, they're still very mysterious. We don't yes. know a lot. Of, but you know, by all accounts, such as they are, they suggest that going through the mysteries was difficult. Right. It was terrifying. It was draining. It was exhausting. And so these things... It was co- a multiple day event. Multiple day event, right? So it cost you time. It cost you money. Right. Um, it was emotional. It was it was psychologically draining. A, a little bit like going to Disney World? <laughs> exactly right. Yes. But um, with hopefully some sort of enlightenment on the other right. end. Right. <laughs> the enlightenment being, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so... Um, and, and so these these mystery cults kind of offered something very very personal. Yeah. Um. And through the and it uh, you know unlike you know the Odysseus Athena example, this said you can be any Joe Jane Doe Athenian. Right. And if you go through this ritual, this goddess is now looking out for you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be the extraordinary one. And what they had in common, um, at least the three we mentioned, mm-hmm. seems to be they dealt with the question of, of death and rebirth. Yes. Um, and the notion of personal salvation. Right. Was there some way to square, you know, the trouble in the world, the, the feelings of um, isolation and loneliness and, and misery that I think just about everybody feels at some point and, mm-hmm. and some people feel a lot. Yeah. Is there some way to overcome that? Right. And these uh, seem to offer a hope of that kind of... Um, Possibility. Yes, indeed. So if you if you look at you know the the mystery cults that we know a little something about, you know Isis, Dionysus, uh, Sibylle, Mithras, uh, Demeter, uh, the goddess of Samothrace, um, they all seem to have something in common where the central deity undergoes some kind of death and resurrection mm-hmm. experience, uh, be it metaphorical, um, allegorical. Um, so like if Mithras, you know, he kills the bull, which some people think, you know, represents death. Right. Um, and, in, and then, you know, feeding on the carcass of the bull, you kind of, you come back to life. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the story we're going to be talking about with Demeter and Persephone has the, in this Homeric hymn has the clearest narrative of that kind of death and resurrection right. where Persephone goes to, she literally marries death mm. and then, uh, you know, annually kind of, you know, goes down to death and returns. Right. And so she's, she finds a way to go to death and to get beyond it. And we should say that by uh, Roman times, 
uh, many upper-class Romans got themselves initiated into these uh, various mystery religions yes. almost as a kind of tourism. Yes, so, indeed. So there's the Disney World connection. Exactly right? You right. go to Athens and you see the library, you listen to some philosophers, you get some tzatziki or some gelato, you get yourself initiated and you go back to Rome. Exactly right, right. And it was boosted by... Uh, and they do have gelato in Greece, I just want to make that point Yes, clear. they do. They have very good gelato Absolutely. In yes, exactly. Um, and it was boosted by uh, emperors like Hadrian, who was a uh, a big believer in the mystery cults. In fact, you know, having just been at Eleusis, you know, every plaque I read rem- uh, reminded me that most of what you see there were refurbishments done yes. by Hadrian in the right. second century. And so, yeah, the, you had the the face of the emperor uh, stamped on these places right. and saying, "Yeah, this is this is this is good." There was a huge pile of Amazon packages on Hadrian's front porch on his steps. Right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he was tearing open packages. I got to refurbish this. I got to refurbish that. Yeah. And redid the entire site of Eleusis. He did, yeah, amongst many other places as well. And he and was I, a huge Phihelene too. Yes, he was. And I think it was at Eleusis that uh, we famously heard that remark of that dear young lady on our 2011 trip. What's the one she was complaining about? The if po- I see another old stone, I'm going to puke. <laughs> That's right. That was at Eleusis. That was Eleusis. <laughs> now, in her defense, it was kind of near the end of the trip. And yeah, okay. Exactly. Understandable. She had been a good sport. She had been a good sport. But it's one of those things that you either, I think at some level, you either find kind of a haunting beauty in it, or you just say, oh, just show me something intact. Already. Enough. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So that's where we're going with this. And so I would add one more thing is that right. these, um, these death and resurrection motifs are not always in the mystery cults, but they're often tied to the cycle of the seasons. Right? Yeah. So and, you have a note here in the script, a vegetation cycle. Yeah. The veg- is this something you've been, you've been writing lately? The, the vegetation cycle? It's, yeah. It's, it's very locale. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as we'll see, again, none more clearly than in the Homer came to, to Demeter, um, Persephone's going to the underworld. Um, when she does that, her mother, Demeter, the goddess of grain, she mourns. And when the goddess of grain mourns, the earth shrivels and dies. You get yes. fall, you get winter. And then when her daughter comes back, she rejoices, you get the blooming of spring and summer. Right. And so the, the shriveling uh, and death, quote unquote, of the earth uh, mirrors the the death of the goddess and, and the same thing with the resurrection. So in um, myth interpretation terms, mm-hmm. this would be an etiology. Yes. Right? This would be uh, an explanation. Now, I don't accept the etiological explanation for myths myself. I'm skeptical of that because yeah. I, I don't think they are... Um, they have enough explanatory power. I, I don't think the ancients themselves clung to them that way. Well, that's but why it, I think it's not a valid way to understand it. Okay, yeah. So the, I mean, we, we won't digress too far, but the etiological explanation is um, ancient peoples were primitive. Yes. They didn't understand how things worked. Right, right, so right. they made up these stories, right? Death and rebirth, I don't understand that. It must be a goddess involved. Right. It's a little too simplistic. Right, exactly. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine, you know, September, October rolling around in Athens, it's getting a little chilly. And say, oh, well, Persephone must be descending. No. In, in this kind of literal kind of sense. No, I don't think they were that simplistic. No, I don't either. I don't either, right. So, But I think that's also, that's um, a reflective of our own times. We, I, I think we can default to the literal. Correct. In a way that I think does not, does not mesh with how kind of the ancients understood and saw their world. No, and yeah. of course, uh, to add to that, you know, our belief that technical, technological sophistication equals uh, greater understanding. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which it doesn't. No. But before we um, before we talk about Demeter, we have to talk about the genre of the Homeric hymns a little bit, isn't that right? Yes. So the Homeric hymns is this uh, collection of thirty three anonymous poems. These hymns um, written uh, to various deities. Sometimes they double up. Uh, most of them are very very short, um, and they were uh, they were they are called the Homeric hymns. Uh, I mean, I've read a, a few things that some have argued that um, because they were written in the dactylic hexameter. 
the same meter as, as the Iliad and the Odyssey that many uh, early uh, readers assumed that they were from Homer. I right. don't know if that's true or not. Um, but they, they You don't know if it's true that that was the assumption. Yes, right. right. Um, but because they're written in the same meter and they kind of maybe have kind of that Iliadic right. Odyssey and feel to them, well, they're dealing with deities, um, right. right? And so they were. Um, there may have been a kind of an early understanding that, or assumption that they were were hom- they were actually Homeric, correct? Um, but uh, they're not, right? Yeah. Um, and so there, there's these short short poems, and uh, each of them are dedicated to one god or a goddess, um, and they're very interesting reads. And the the Homer, Homer came to to Demeter is the third longest of them. Yeah, 495 lines. Yeah, so it's a, it's a sizable poem. Only the, the the hymns to Apollo and Hermes are longer. Right, so it's what we would call technically an apillion, right? Yes. A mini epic. A mini epic, yeah, exactly. Now, at this point, the listener is getting a little bit nervous. Oh, are they? Well, yes, About because what? we just finished the 12 books of the Aeneid. <laughs> And they're going, no, no. don't start over. <laughs> oh, no. A- Another year. <laughs> Apillion, 495 lines. What are they going to do with this hymn to Demeter? Right. But, uh, I remember when I first encountered these in grad school, mm-hmm. uh, it was in our rapid readings course with uh, Jack Holtzmark of uh, Tarzan fame. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So we read, I think, I don't know, four, four or six books of the Iliad. Then we read four or six books of the Odyssey. And he said, we got to read some Homeric hymns after we read uh, Hesiod, Works and Days. Yeah. And uh, in the Loeb edition, um, the old Loeb edition, um, 1920, I think, uh, Hugh Evelyn White, um, the Homeric hymns and the Hesiodic poems are put together. Oh, really? For convenience sake. And also because by, um, by common consent or common consensus, um, Hesiod is a slightly younger contemporary of Homer. Oh. And the Homeric hymns have that archaic stamp, right? even though they were not written by Homer, whoever he was, or Hesiod. Right, right. Oh, that's really interesting. I think that, I mean, the general kind of scholarly consensus is that most of these poems were written um, in the 7th uh, right. seventh century. So, so you know, between 699 and 600. Yeah, so on the he, on the, just on the heels of Hesiod, perhaps. Right. right? So, yeah, that's really Not a bad place to be. No. On the bad. heels of Hesiod. Yeah. But Jeff, you've already made the point that these hymns are of different length, mm-hmm. right? So can you give us kind of an idea of how much variety is there and, and why does the poem to Demeter stand out? Yeah, so most of them, um, if, you, if you were to, I'm not going to you know, read, through, read through the list. All the statistics. Right, but most of them are very short. Okay. Um, uh, five lines, seven lines, 13 lines, 18 lines seems to be uh, the norm. Right. Um, I see a- this one to Artemis is nine lines. Yes, right. Aphrodite actually gets three Homeric hymns. One is... Uh, 293 lines. The okay. next one is 21 lines, and the and the last one is six lines. And so they're kind of all over the place in terms of of their length. And so the fact that the hymn to Demeter is 495 lines really makes it stand out. That's right? a whopper. Yep. And uh, did you read anything in the scholarship about why this might be? Is the idea that some of the longer poems were lost? Or is Demeter special, and that's why this one uh, is longer? I don't know. That's, okay. that's a really good question, right? Uh, my personal favorite of them is is the Homeric hymn to Hermes, which where is he so steals much, the cattle. It's so much fun! It's funny, isn't it? It's funny. Yeah. He steals Apollo's cattle and creeps back into the you know the cradle, and uh, I'm an innocent child. What could I have exactly? Done? He pulls up his blankie and he says, right. uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, who me?" Right. right. It's great. And it's Apollo, great. you know, can't really. Um, can't really bring the the hammer down on him. He's just a baby. He's too cute. So Zeus intervenes and resolves the dispute. Right. It's and pretty funny. It is. But if, if you compare the tone of the the Hermes hymn and the Demeter hymn, 
they're they're so radically different. Right. right? It would be hard to it would be hard for me to read the Homeric came to Hermes and say, oh, this is clearly you know setting the template for how one should worship Hermes. No. No. It's setting the tone for a, a kind of a a sitcom. A sitcom. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly right. And but the Homeric came to, to Demeter is 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 so different. Yeah. And so not only are the the hymns you know radically different in terms of the length, but the the tone is, mm-hmm. is is all over the map too. Yeah, I'd like to read a little bit of a quote here yeah. uh, from a book called we've we've referenced it before, a handbook of Greek literature uh, by one H. J. Rose. Mm-hmm. One of the great virtues of this book is that it's in the public domain. Mm. Uh, another great virtue is that it's comprehensive. So you know, people might say the scholarship in there is a little bit dated. Okay, fine. A few things have changed since 1934. <laughs> But a lot of it's very accurate. Right. So, that, and, and I see that copy you're holding. Is that your own personal copy? I was just going to mention. Yes, it is. It looks and, very well worn. And guess whose name is inscribed on the inside? One Robert J. Otten. No way. Yeah. Yes. Now, you never had him as a professor. And I neither did, not. did I. This is uh, the late Bob Otten, who was a professor of classics at Calvin University. That's right. That's right. Yep. So, so I inherited, you stole it from him? No. <laughs> I, I inherited the copy. Maybe he gave it to Rich Weavers and, and I got it. It made it way to, to you. That's yeah, great. It's sweet to have the books of those who've gone before. So, Indeed. So this is from uh, page 53, and the chapter is on Homer and the Ancient Epic. And Rose says, quote, the hymn to Demeter is one of the best, a little epic in itself, dealing in 495 really poetical and eloquent lines with the story of Demeter's sorrows, how Persephone was carried off by Hades and searched for by her mother, who in her wanderings came to Eleusis and after the restoration of her daughter inaugurated her mysteries there. Since Athens is not mentioned in this connection, Eleusis must have been independent when the hymn was written. Hmm. It seems to have been annexed sometime in the 6th century. That is, that Eleusis was annexed by Athens and became part of its, you know, its, um, what, I don't know, suzerainty, something like that. Mm-hmm. Therefore, a 7th century date, as you were saying, is consistent with this piece of evidence. So sometime between 699 and 600 and not contradicted by anything else in the poem. Yes. That's 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 really interesting. I'm glad you read that, right? Because uh, when we when we get to the episodes talking about well, how was the ritual celebrated? Athens plays a huge part. Right, it starts in Athens and it ends in Athens. Right, and um, so it's it's a little bit of an argument from silence, we should say. That is true. I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but um, I often do that. Uh, and that is, Athens isn't mentioned in the hymn to Demeter, and because we know when Athens annexed Eleusis, it would be natural to assume. That they would have inserted something about Athens, right? You know, at the time the poem was taken over. But I think that's a fair assumption. I, I think so too. Yeah. I yeah. think so too. You know, if um, we find some analog, right? If the state of Michigan decided to annex Chicago, mm-hmm. right, four million people, the third largest city or something like that in yeah. the United States, the state of Michigan would probably mention in a celebratory poem that hey, we own Chicago, right, right, right. with the Cubs, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. And I think too that you know these are these arguments um, that well, you know there are th- there were things that we know in the ritual that aren't mentioned in the poems. You know, was was the poem how, how connected was the poem right. to the ritual? Well, I mean, these things aren't static; these things grow over time. And so right. you know, as Athens kind of takes over, uh, you know, the the ownership of the cult. Yeah, other things bleed in. It takes right. on a, a different flavor. Exactly. So Speaking of other things bleeding in, yes, and taking on a different flavor. Yes, it's time for the ads. Let's do it. This 
episode of Odd Nosium is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, apparently the hit at Latin colloquiums yes. uh, across the, the Fruited Plain. Yes. Right? <laughs> Very popular. <laughs> Very popular. Yeah. It was actually hard to, to pull people away from the machine. Come on, we got to study some Latin. They were kind of gathered around yeah, we it. we want to watch in hushed yeah, tones. You exactly. Know? And, the, and the, the, the coffee maker was kind of giving off this kind of this unearthly glow. Yes. Right? <laughs> like it had been in, initiated into a mystery cult. Exactly. Right. So... So Dave, um, uh, I love my ratio. I know you do. Machine, yep. You've got your own hulking flagon now with the eight. You've got the six sitting on the shelf. It's mm-hmm. not going anywhere. You know. didn't I... have the grace to re-gift it to some poor extended family member who's drinking, you know, I don't know, pirate boat swill. Right. Yeah. That, that day will come. Okay. It will, it will find, find a home. But just before I left uh, here to meet you in the bunker, I filled the, the, the tank up with water. Nice. I got my, uh, I got the... Um, you know, the metal, my new metal. Did you get a metal, metal cone? cone? Oh, it's changed everything. Game changer, isn't it? It is, right? Enough throwing away those paper things. Exactly. Um, and then, again, the hulking flagon, which just keeps the coffee hot for right. hours. Um, without Did you brew up some some this morning for Mrs. Winkle? Of course. Yep. All right. I, I brew up a cup. I brought it up to her as she was kind of reading up in bed. Oh, man. It's a, it's a great way to start the day. It is a good way to start the day. Yeah. And so in my travels, you know, I was drinking from, I don't know how to, Guric, uh, the, the Guric. You know, Cur- yes. Guric. There may be some consonants switched there. Are you, it's me, Curie? No, I wasn't going to say that. We're oh. protecting ourselves against lawsuits. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So ignore what I just said. Yeah, right. the little cups where you stick it in the top yes. and you pull the lever down. And, right. I mean, it's passable. Yeah. You know, I survived in right. one piece, but where was my ratio? Exactly right. And those things where you just get the one cup at a time, you, mm-hmm. know, you have to kind of go back and do it all over again. No. Very no. labor intensive. Very labor intensive. You won't find that with the ratio eight no, or the six. You want just a... One button push. One button push that takes you through the bloom, through the brew, and the ready. That's, That's it. That's correct. Yep. So while I was teaching in Kansas, mm-hmm. we were talking about something in the Greek class, and um, I think it was Ben. I think it was this young man, Ben, fine mm-hmm. Greek student. We're working along, and I said, you know, okay, so we're doing pretty well. I, I think you, you folks are a little rusty. You know, it's early in the day, maybe a little tired, and Ben said, hey, we're in the bloom stage. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Right? Yeah. Did you did you give him his props in the moment or did you hold back? No, I gave him his props. Okay, well, I've grown in that all right. in that regard. I'm you know serious. me pretty well, don't you? I do. All right. <laughs> but if someone would like to score their own coffee machine, Jeff, yes. what should they do? They should go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. Uh, find the machine that you want, the eight or the six. Um, type in the, the coupon code. Uh, Dave, what's our coupon code for this? Uh, uh, so it's the July code still even though we are in august we are in august but this code will work it'll work so uh, a n yes ad nauseum c o coffee uh the letter the number six mm-hmm. as in two times three and the letter b as in bloom or brackish brackish yeah. yes or beautiful beautiful should we say it again a n c o six b yes check it out so and if you get that if you put that in your oh uh, in, right. the, in the in the box yes that will get you 15 percent off your entire that's correct you don't want to miss out on this this episode of ad nauseum is also brought to you by the good folks at hackett publishing hackett has been in business for 52 years now i believe as long as i've been on this earth yes and they have produced some fantastic volumes if you want to read about the homeric world you want to read translations of homer's iliad and odyssey you know in my travels again i have met folks who are taking advantage of this coupon i just got an email this week someone said hey i'm interested in, in brushing up on some augustine should i check out the um 
I think it's the selected Augustan reader from Hackett. Mm. It's an excellent volume. Yeah. And uh, these folks have been with us from the very beginning, uh, providing us with so much support and support for the classics in general. Yep. Jeff, you're going to say that you like the covers. I, of course I like the covers, right? What else do you like? I like uh, how affordable these volumes yes. are. Um, I teach a student population that um, many of the kids, they don't have a lot of extra money. And right. so, you know, buying textbooks is a burden. And I know that for my they're class... Not, they're not putting books on daddy's credit card necessarily. No, no not at all. Right. Um, and so when I can offer them an excellent erudite text from Hackett, and, and it's going to cost them, um, you know, maybe $8 to get right. Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Odyssey... Can't uh, beat it. You can't beat it. No. And so, uh, and I have, I, I like them on my own shelves as well. Right. It's just great stuff. Would you say the selection is narrow or broad? Very broad. Would right. you say it's shallow or deep? I would say it's very deep. Would you say it's expensive or hits the sweet spot of affordability? I would say choice B. Okay. Right there. Right. So, listeners, go do yourself a favor. Go to hackettpublishing.com. That's H A C K E T T publishing.com. Find the, the books that you want, drop them in your little grocery satchel, and type in this coupon code AN2023. So that's AN Ad Nauseam plus the current year. And Dave, that will get them 20% off their order and, and free shipping. Free shipping. Check it out. Okay, Jeff, so as we get back into the yes. hymn to Demeter, yeah. uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about who she was. Yeah, not, not, a, not a, I don't want to go on at length here, but uh, for our listeners who, for maybe this is just, this is brand new, uh, Demeter was um, an, an earth mother, mm-hmm. goddess. Uh, in some ways, she... The, see, the mater part means mother, right? right? That's what, that's what um, I think that's a, a safe assumption to yep. make. Um, and she kind of takes over that, the earth goddess qualities that um, Hera... Uh, I think kind of you know, loses along the mm-hmm. along the way, right? So you know Zeus and Hera together, uh, sky god and earth goddess, that kind of that heroes gamos, that classic pairing you find in, mm-hmm. in many traditions around the world. Hera kind of loses her association with the earth, and then that hole is kind of plucked by Demeter. Hera takes on maternity and um, childbirth, childbearing, yeah. other kinds right. of things. But Demeter is a, a doublet of Gaia, right? Right. The the earth herself, but. I don't think Gaia is ever anthropomorphized. No. Right? Whereas Demeter is a, a full-grown woman. She's, exactly. She appears in human form all the time. Yes. And she's an Olympian, am I right? She is, a first-generation Olympian. So she's, yeah. uh, she's a daughter of Rhea and Kronos, and so she, that makes her a sister to Zeus, Zeus and Hera and Poseidon and Hades. Mm-hmm. And you know, her the fact that she's a sister to Hades in this story just adds a kind of a layer of of weird, maybe that the ancients wouldn't have paid attention to. Yeah. But if you if you look at the family tree, it's it's tangled. It is. Well, she has an affair with Zeus at one point. I don't remember who the progeny was. Yeah, right. But there's a there's a lot of uh, craziness going on. Yes. Um. But let's get into it. Did we start by reading the first few lines of this of this poem in uh, Greek? I would love to. So this is in dactylic hexameter, and I am using the lobe edition that I mentioned previously, and they go something like this: the first five lines. De me tre ukomon semnen the on arkoma eden, outen ed thu gatrata nus furon, hein ai deo neos. Herpaxen do ken de baruk tupos eldruopa zeos. Nosfin de me tros crusa a oru agla o carpu. And finally, paisu san cu re sisun 
Okeanu Bathu Kol Pois. Very nicely done. Thank right. you. Right. It's a little more challenging than some of the Latin hexameters that we've read. Indeed. Right. There. But, but our listeners, you know, who listen to our Iliad and Odyssey episodes might, you know, might recognize, that, or our, the Iranian episodes, that dum diddy dum diddy dum kind of rhythm. Exactly. That, right. Yeah, it's a marching, rapid, uh, stately at times. Right. So let me I'll give a translation. This translation comes from um, uh, Gregory Nagy, oh. classicist from Harvard. Yes, famous guy. Yep. I don't know if he's still teaching. Or, but I he, don't know. He's been around forever. Um, and listen, if you look at the, the Harvard Classics webpage, you can find this translation there uh, for free. Uh, but Naj translates uh, thusly, I begin to sing of Demeter, the holy goddess with the beautiful hair, and her daughter, too, the one with the delicate ankles whom Hades seized. She was given away by Zeus, the loud thunderer, the one who sees far and wide. Demeter did not take part in this, she of the golden double axe, she who glories in the harvest. She, that is Persephone, was having a good time along with the daughters of Okeanos, the daughters of Ocean, who wear their waistbands slung low. They wear their waistbands slung low? This just struck me funny because it comes up. It's like at, yoga pants? At least like four times in this poem about, huh. uh, about the ladies who wear their waistbands slung low. Well, of, of what is this a translation? Let me see. They wear their waistbands. This is Bathu Kolpois. Yes. That's what it is, Bathu Kolpois. Um, Deep, um, yeah, low in front kind of low in front right i'm not sure was this some kind of fashion statement yeah i think maybe it's because they're down by the ocean and Mm. they're uh cavorting and sporting in the waves yeah i'm not sure maybe there may be some somewhat of a sexual connotation that it's supposed to be alluring they're you know scantily clad i'm I'm not sure Uh, yeah it's um it shows up a couple of times later um with uh associated with uh i think persephone herself so Mm. so i'm not exactly know what kind of why this this shows up it just kind of struck me probably unintentionally funny yeah with these low slinging waistbands. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I would say that when it comes to things striking you unintentionally funny, yeah, yeah, you have a pretty light trigger there. Okay, that's okay. Fair enough. But so I'm do not, I. Not, we could go back to the tomatoes. <laughs> right, right, exactly. All right. So, um, percep- what, what do we make of this, Jeff? I don't. I, well, I mean, this is a, a, a in terms of um, like you know archetypal you know, stories. This is a, a very common one where yeah, a young maiden kind of wanders mm-hmm. away from civilization. And she's usually doing something kind of innocent and, and, and carefree. Like Europa, Europa with the bull, right? Right. Or even, I, it makes me think of um, Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. She's going to grandma's house to, to bring her some, you know, a pot of butter. Right. And she wanders through the woods and she encounters the, you know, the big bad wolf. Pot of butter. But th- th- that's the version that... Really? Yeah. No, she's bringing her grandma's sick. So what do you bring sick people? Pot of butter. <laughs> I never heard that. <laughs> yeah. First of all, who carries... Um, Butter in pots. Well, it's a crock. Country crock. A country crock, right? Okay. With a little handle. Right, right. exactly. Um, but there's lots of stories in folk tales and myths yes. around the world. Um, and then something violent and terrifying right. swoops into this locus amoinus and causes havoc. Right. And a common interpretation of these of these stories is that these stories involving these kind of young, innocent, often virginal women is that it's kind of a cautionary tale right. about their, their their purity. Right? Yeah, don't and, do that. And the monster, um, you know, represents a violation of that. Yeah. And so this is this is a similar kind of thing. And so she's out gathering flowers. Um, in the poem, we learned that she plucks the narcissus flower. Mm-hmm. She's with her entourage. With her entourage. And yeah. And that's uh, often how these stories go. They're with friends who witness this. The earth opens up. And out of the crack in the earth comes up Hades, Hades in his dread chariot, grabs Persephone and drags her down into the underworld to kind of force her to be his bride, kind of caveman style. Yeah, I have to say this is to me, uh, though I'm not a young maiden and never have been, obviously, yeah. 
perhaps the f- most frightening story in classical myth. It's terrifying because yeah. of the being buried alive idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not. It's not just what you know Hades intends to do, but the suddenness and finality of being pulled down below the earth. Right. That that's what's frightening. Yeah. And of course, there's a very famous statue group uh, by Bernini. I was right? just going to say that. Yeah. <clears throat> and the Borghese Galleria. Yeah. Equally frightening with it, its pneumatic technique. It is right. It's it's very similar to the Apollo Daphne, but I in yes. some ways I find that the oh it, much worse. It's much worse, and it's it kind of has that. It's kind of that has that twisting effect. You can walk around the statue, and you know uh, Persephone or Proserpina's right. body is twisted. Yes, and she's trying to get away from it, and you know, and the tears coming from her her face, and kind of that that maniacal laugh on the face of Hades. Yeah, with her hand on his face, if I remember yes, correctly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's there's it's kind incredible. of a fighting chance for uh, Daphne, right? Yeah, and the it's a more refined statue in some ways. Also Bernini, and in the same, if I'm not mistaken, it's in the same uh, museum. It's in, um, it, isn't it in the Borghese? Borghese, yeah, yeah both of the, them are both there. Both of them, yep. I think there are four Berninis there, if I'm not mistaken. There's the we're getting off track, but right. I think his David and Goliath is in there, and um, <clears throat> maybe the Aeneas and Anchises. Yeah, um, but it's just it's it's incredible the way that I remember about that statue, uh, Hades. The way his hands kind of press into yes. her flesh. So it's, that's called the pneumatic technique I, it, it, I referenced earlier. It looks as though, you know, the marble is um, pudgy. It's yeah. inflated. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, but um, there's also a very famous, uh, one of the rare Greek uh, paintings at uh, Pella, remember? Um, near the tomb of Alexander. Remind me. Not, I'm not, not Alexander, but uh, Philip II in I'm Pella. I'm not remembering this. What, what oh, this is of, of Hades in the chariot abducting Persephone. Oh, okay. I don't You've know. You've seen that, haven't you? I'm, I'm sure I have. I'm just not, I'm just not remembering it. it yeah. Well, it's in Pella or Virginia. I can't remember. Maybe okay. it's in Virginia, but all in that region of uh, Macedonia, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've seen it, but also equally frightening. Yeah. So down she goes, and what happens next? Down she goes. Um, her cries kind of echo throughout the world. Um, uh, the author tells us that um, Hecate... And Helios hear the cries, um, but they so Hecate the witch goddess, yes, and Helios the sun, the sun. Um, but they're both hesitate to do anything about it because they they know or they learn that that Zeus has, has given his, his stamp of approval and said to his brother, "You can do this." And so when Zeus says something's going to happen, um, you know you're not going to step on his toes. And so it's um, um, it becomes it becomes that much more brutal for Demeter that people know about this, but they um, won't step up to help. Well, I mentioned earlier that um, Zeus and Demeter, right, brother and sister, had an affair, mm-hmm. right? And I said I couldn't remember who their progeny was. Yes. Well, this is, you know, face palm, I think they call that. <laughs> right. So go ahead, Jeff. It's Persephone. Right. Yes. So is this Zeus's own daughter that's being abducted by yeah. his brother. Whose abduction uh, Zeus uh, endorses and permits and allows? It's, it's terrible. Yes. Right. So as the story goes on... Um, uh, Demeter hears her daughter's cries um, echoing off the mountains. And here I'm going to pick up with more of um, uh, Professor Naj's uh, translation, um, which goes, And the lady mother Dem- Demeter heard her, and a sharp achos seized her heart. A pain? Grief. Yes. Yes. Uh, the headband on her hair she tore off with her own immortal hands and threw a dark cloak over her shoulders. She sped off like a bird soaring over land and sea, looking and looking, but no one was willing to tell her the truth. Not one of the gods, not one of the mortal humans, not one of the birds, messengers of the truth. Thereafter, for nine days did the Lady Demeter wander all over the earth, holding torches ablaze in her hands. Not once did she take of ambrosia and nectar sweet to drink in her grief, 
nor did she bathe her skin in water. Hmm. So what are the torches for? Are, are they uh, used to search for her, or are they symbols of mourning? I think they're. I think they're both. It's a okay. very layered symbol. Um, this is one of these things that um, you know, scholars of the of the mysteries um, argue they, that may have been reenacted. That you know, as the initiates kind of go through this, one of the things that they're also doing, they're also looking for Persephone. Right, so they would carry torches in a in a nighttime ritual, right? Couldn't and, they just shake their iPhone and turn the flashlight on automatically? Can you you know how unimpressive would uh, a modern version of this? Just yes. kind of tap the little flashlight. You know, where are you? <laughs> right, they'd, lo- they'd locate her by GPS, and it would be over in a in a minute. Right. right. <laughs> um, Thankfully, but, these stories were from a more I don't know. Uh, Primitive time, simple, simple time. A simple time. In terms of te- technology. Right, right. Um, and But I think also the, the carrying of the torches. Um, Hecate is also a goddess who's often depicted with torches. Well, so right. She lights your way through the underworld. Think of kind of searching through the darkness of death um, for the daughter that you've lost um, to, mm-hmm. to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, the nine days, um, that becomes... I think clearly kind of pro- programmatic for the later uh, celebration of the mysteries is that uh, the the greater mysteries, uh, as we'll learn later, there were two stages of the mysteries. Mm-hmm. The lesser mysteries took place in March, and the greater mysteries took place in September. In the fall. In the fall, right? Um, right around the the equinox when right. Persephone would be allegorically descending. Mm-hmm. Um, and they those greater mysteries lasted for a total of nine days. And so the assumption is, which I think is a fair one, is that it's why? Well, that's because that's how long that Demeter. Search for her daughter before winding up at Eleusis herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was, as we'll we'll um, discuss later, a long procession from the city of Athens all the way to Eleusis yes. for the celebration of the greater mysteries. Yes, correct in exactly. the fall. That's what kind of capped off. That was the um, the uh, th- that was the moment that kind of capped off the the main part of the mysteries. Right. Yep. Well, Jeff, we're getting up against it a little bit. We are. And uh, this seems like a pretty natural place to break off. Yes. And in anticipation of part two. Yeah. So um, what should we say about this now in, in, in terms of where we're headed? So um, what we'll pick it up next time is so Demeter herself, she, uh, as we'll learn, she disguises herself as an old woman and she actually comes to rest in the small town of the Lucis. Um, and that's where the story really starts to heat up. Um, and we start to kind of understand why that tiny little town, you know, 14 miles up the coast from from Athens becomes so important in, this, gonna, in this story. We're going to be introduced to some other characters, right? Yes. The king and Demophoon, mm-hmm. and there's some nighttime lactation, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, there are. Yeah, there's uh, there's all kinds of things going on. The queen, Metanera, the daughters. Right. Um, there's a, there's a, a figure who... Um, Tells jokes and gets Demeter to laugh for the first time, and so <laughs> does the, he have a tomato bit? Uh, he, he uh, she needs a tomato bit. Yeah, definitely. Right. I, I don't know if that the tomato bit would have. Well, I mean, she's a goddess of, of agriculture. She would have loved. The She'd tomato. have gone for that. Oh man, that would have been huge. Yeah, exactly. But we are up against the clock. We are. We got to get out of here. But before we do. Dave, tell us a little bit about the um, uh, Moss Method and LPSI, would you? Yeah, sure. So um, when I was out in Kansas, I was uh, promoting the Moss Method. They're using it in schools now. Fantastic. And uh, it's, I mean, the the book is fantastic. It's a great book, 19th century. Charles Melville Moss put together these really interesting stories. And I've just been, you know, standing on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And uh, I built a program around it. So... You've got module one with 40 lessons, uh, whiteboard explanations of the grammar in great detail. Uh, But in order to get started reading the stories, you only have to know the first declension of the noun. So that's eight forms and six verb forms. And then you just start reading, right? Yeah. So no... uh, 
memorizing lots of grammar before you start. You you learn it along the way. So you hit the ground running. That's right. It's yeah. a lot of fun. And there's a great quote at the beginning of the Moss book where uh, Moss has words to the effect of, um, you know, Greek should be a matter of the, the intuition and the brain. It shouldn't be an exercise in flipping through a lexicon. Yeah. yeah. And I really like that. You yeah. Know, he's trying to to get you to appreciate and understand the language. So if you're interested in studying Greek with me, go to mossmethod.com. Please check out the program. I have a new um, episode uh, dropping, as they say, um, something from 2 Corinthians, a little tiny uh, free Greek lesson coming out pretty soon. Uh, when Mishka you know, gets that done, you can check out that and all the other free material. And uh, if you like the course, sign up and uh, join me for office hours each week. Fantastic. And what about LPSI? Yeah, so I got a Latin program too, and uh, it's newer. It's not as old as Moss. hasn't been going as long. But latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI, Hans Orberg wrote the great Familia Romana, the lingua latina per se illustrata. And uh, you can take this course. Like Moss, it's self-paced, expert, and accessible. It begins ab initio from the ground up. It's a great value. I like to say about my programs, there may be better teaching out there. It would be immodest for me to claim otherwise. Uh, but I think this is really the best value, the combination of expertise and uh, affordability. Fantastic. And like the Moss Method, this too also kind of gets you reading Latin right away, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, Roma in Italia est. That's how it starts out. Anybody can do that. Yeah. And um, it's kind of nice sometimes when you're in a class, um, as in this one, to watch other people learn. Yeah. So it's much less pressure. Right. We've got four you know, studio audience members kind of, I'm teaching them you can watch as they learn. That sounds great. All right, Dave. Um, also, before we go, uh, big thanks to to Mishka, our intrepid engineer who puts this all together so nicely and uh, makes it makes us sound so good. And and not only that, but, yeah. but when uh, Mishka first started working for me with some of the other projects, yeah. there was no mention of a podcast. You know what she was going to do in the beginning? What was that? Like data entry. Is that right? Yes. Oh, man. And I said, well, you know, Mishka, can, can you do some other stuff? Well, I'll give it a try. You know, how about the audio and video production? I'll give it a try. Yeah. And I mean, she's... Boom. She can do it all. Fantastic. Fantastic. Also, thanks to Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music you, see, you hear throughout the Some the roaring riffs there. That, yeah. Really nice stuff. The bumper music for the commercials and the guitar intro and outro. It's great stuff. Good stuff. And hey, if you want to if you want to drop a note, if you want a, a, a shout out like Tyler got in this episode, um, Drop us a note. You can write to Dave, Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. We've got some good correspondence recently. We're going to reply to that. Don't worry. Yes. Uh, you're not forgotten. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a couple of shout outs in the, in the pipeline, I think. We'd love to have more. Fantastic. Yes. And next week, we're going to pick it up where we left off, and we're going to continue looking at this this wonderful, enigmatic, and, and uh, mysterious hymn. Right. Yep. The Homeric Hymn to Demeter. Now, uh, Jeff, this is where you usually say... Yeah. I believe you have the gustatory parting shot? I do, yes. but we're not going to cue the music right at the end of this because we have a special send-off. Oh, we do? Yeah, so a young fan, uh, a young man that whom I met this week, uh, a charming young individual, and a voracious reader of the classics, and he loves this podcast. It was, uh, it was so uh, thrilling uh, to hear about how much he is enjoying this, this, uh, this young man. And uh, he wanted to meet Dr. Winkle. I said, well, I, you know, I don't know if we can do that. Uh, we only bring him out on special occasions. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I had him record a little bit of a, of a valediction, which is going to oh, uh, cool. come here at the end. Excellent. So we're going to hear from, uh, from him, from Jonathan. The gustatory parting shot yes. is uh, from one P.J. O'Rourke. Mm. 
And um, I like this a lot. Fish is the only food that is considered spoiled once it smells like what it is. <laughs> That's so true. So people say, hey, that smells like fish. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. Hi, this is Jonathan from Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening to the Ad Nauseum Podcast.